0: That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon.
2: Due to the graphic nature of this kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Haji Bogcho hated helicopters. They flew overhead constantly, a never-ending reminder of the American invaders. He couldn't even enjoy a cup of tea without it being interrupted by their buzzing.
1: He wondered where the choppers were going this time. The U.S. military had been a daily nuisance in Afghanistan for a decade. But lately, the foreigners had started targeting Bogcho's heroin labs in the mountains. They were blowing them up one by one, destroying his equipment and terrorizing his workers. It was costing him a fortune.
2: The noise of the chopper blades was deafening, and it only kept getting louder. That's when Bogcho realized the helicopters weren't passing by, they were coming for him. I'm Howell Hargett.
1: And I'm Kate Leonard, and this is Kingpins. Every week, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings from street gangs to mafiosos to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld
2: and why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them and how it changed the community around them.
1: This episode is about Haji Bogcho, who ran one of the most prolific drug trafficking rings in the world from the 1990s to 2009.
2: At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network.
1: And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us.
2: On June 12, 2012, 70-year-old Haji Bagcho stood before a judge in Washington, D.C. He was a long way from his home in Afghanistan, and he might never be going back.
1: Bagcho had just been convicted for drug distribution and narco-terrorism. His lawyers had advised him not to testify at the trial. They didn't want him to incriminate himself. But at his sentencing hearing... Bogcho refused to stay silent.
2: He ranted about the witnesses who had been called to testify against him. They were liars and criminals, according to Bogcho. He called himself an honorable man, a simple merchant like his father and his grandfather before him.
1: Bogcho may have thought of himself as a merchant, but it would be hard to describe his lifestyle as simple.
2: By his own admission, Bogcho owned property in both Afghanistan and Pakistan. More than one person described his home in Afghanistan as a castle with a column-lined main residence, a guesthouse, electricity and running water, luxurious accommodations compared to his neighbors.
1: Most people in Bogcho's province earned a living by farming, raising livestock, or trading in lumber. Bogcho spent his days putting together heroin deals. In 2006, his operation produced and sold over 120,000 kilograms of heroin, about 20% of the world's total heroin supply that year.
2: In a single year, Bogcho earned $250 million, making him one of the world's richest people in one of the world's poorest countries. The question is, how did he get there?
1: It's a difficult question to answer. Thanks to Afghanistan's chaotic past, most of Bogcho's life is a complete mystery until the 1990s, when his international heroin operation seemed to emerge from the dust fully formed. But a little bit of history can help us fill in the blanks.
2: Bagcho was born in 1942 in the Nangarhar province of eastern Afghanistan. Later in life, Bogcho earned the title haji, which is an honorific given to Muslims who have completed the pilgrimage to Mecca.
1: When Bogcho was growing up, Afghanistan was locked in a struggle between urban elites who wanted to modernize the country and rural tribal groups who preferred to keep their traditional ways of life. In Nangarhar, Bagcho lived among a fiercely independent tribal community that resisted any intrusion.
2: Bagcho called his people frontier people, The Western press had called the area ungovernable, comparing it to the Wild West. Militant groups from Al-Qaeda to the Taliban to ISIL have all found refuge in Nangarhar's remote mountains and complex cave systems.
1: In 1945, when Bogcho was just three years old, Afghanistan banned opium production as part of the government's modernization efforts. After World War II, new diplomatic relationships were forming around the globe, and Afghanistan didn't want to be left behind. The ban would show the world that Afghanistan was willing to comply with Western norms, including drug control regulations.
2: But harvesting poppies was a part of daily life in rural Afghanistan. Peasants made cooking oil from poppy seeds, they burned the flower stalks as firewood, they made soap from the ash, and they harvested opium from the flowers for use as a medicine. Banning opium was seen as a tone-deaf insult to their traditions.
1: The law was largely ignored. As long as the government could point to the opium ban as a talking point, they didn't bother actually enforcing it.
2: Neighboring countries like Pakistan, India, and Iran all passed stricter opium bans over the next few decades. And they took their regulations seriously. As a result, opium smuggling out of Afghanistan skyrocketed in the 1960s.
1: By the time Bogcho was in his early 20s, in the mid-60s, drug trafficking rings had sprung up all along the border. Smuggling was so pervasive, it was hardly seen as illegal or immoral. Years later, after Bogcho was arrested, his younger brother admitted, He was a smuggler, that's true. Everyone in our area is.
2: Bogcho came from a relatively well-off family. He inherited property from his father, who was a wood merchant, and used it to start several businesses, gas stations, an electronics store, and an auto import company. But at some point, he turned his focus to drug smuggling. Perhaps he saw it as a business opportunity too lucrative to pass
1: up. He was right about that. It was a lucrative industry, and completely resistant to political turmoil. Things didn't slow down at all when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan in 1979.
2: The Soviet invasion was meant to reinforce Afghanistan's new communist government, which had won control in a coup the previous year. Afghan rebel fighters, who call themselves the Mujahideen, violently resisted the new communist government and the Soviet army.
1: The war devastated the country. Soviet troops targeted rural farmers, burning fields and destroying irrigation canals. But poppies were a durable crop. They kept flourishing, even in the midst of war.
2: So thousands of farmers switched their crop of choice to poppy flowers. Opium production increased exponentially, and drug traffickers had a rebel army ready and willing to protect them. Mujahideen commanders forged an alliance with drug traffickers, including Haji Bagcho. They invested money and resources into smuggling operations, and in return, smugglers gave the Mujahideen a cut of their profits, which they used to fund their fight against the Communists.
1: The Mujahideen had another funding source too, the United States government. Almost immediately after the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, the CIA began secretly arming and financing the rebel forces in their fight against communism. The US was willing to ignore the fact that some of those funds and guns were making their way to drug traders.
2: The increasing flow of drugs was actually a bonus. Heroin started falling into the hands of the Soviet troops. Soon enough, the Soviets were busy shooting up instead of spreading the red menace of communism.
1: A decade after their invasion, the Soviets decided the war was too costly to maintain. They finally withdrew from Afghanistan in 1989. But by then, an entire drug industry had blossomed from the burnt fields. Relationships had been made, trafficking routes had been established, and huge opium bazaars had sprung up throughout the country.
2: In the early 1980s, one of these opium markets opened in Gani Kel about 20 miles from the city of Jalalabad. It sprawled across several blocks, like a giant flea market with over 500 dusty shops and booths.
1: But instead of selling antiques and goods, merchants here sold opium. Throngs of people pushed their way through the bazaar every day. Among them was Haji Bogcho.
2: By the end of the Soviet war in 1989, Bagcho was nearly 50 years old and one of Afghanistan's richest drug smugglers, although he wasn't yet making the nine-figure deals he would later be known for.
1: Some of Bagcho's contemporaries were notorious for their decadent lifestyles. Infamous Afghan kingpin Haji Juma Khan was known for his extravagant alcohol-fueled parties, a big taboo in a traditionally Muslim country.
2: But Bogcho didn't have that reputation. He was a family man. He had six brothers, two wives, and 16 children. He ran his drug operation like any other family business. His brother Bando oversaw the drug labs, where chemists manufactured heroin from opium paste. Bogcho's son, Sucha Gul, handled the money and record keeping.
1: Bogcho employed about 250 workers. Even if they weren't blood related, Bogcho wanted them all to feel like they were part of the family. He kept them close, both emotionally and physically. Most of his servants lived full-time on his family's compound. Bogcho even built a house right next to his own for his top chemist, Farman Shah.
2: Bogcho's favorite servant, Kari, later said, I was not his real son, but when it came to food, clothes, and other things, I was treated the same as his son's.
1: Bogcho was a hands on manager. He visited bazaars personally to ensure the opium he purchased was top quality. He then sent the opium to his drug labs, which were nestled high in the mountains of Nangarhar, thousands of feet above ground level.
2: Once the chemist extracted heroin from the opium, the drugs were brought to Bogcho's compound, where Bogcho directed his workers to wrap it in plastic stamped with Bogcho's signature seal. To his clients, that seal meant that they were getting the best.
1: Most of the heroin was loaded into trucks and smuggled into Pakistan. Bogcho regularly met with Afghan police and border patrol officials. For a price, he could make sure that none of his couriers ever ran into any trouble as they moved caravans of heroin across Afghanistan's Route A1.
2: For smaller orders... Bagcho had an even more careful strategy. The couriers wouldn't eat for days before their task. Their work required empty stomachs. The heroin was put into capsules, and when the time came, they swallowed them, washing them down with glasses of milk.
1: In the early 1990s, Bagcho built a second home base in Hayatabad, Pakistan. He had dual citizenship, which wasn't uncommon, The line between the countries was seen as arbitrary among the tribal communities, who traded freely and spoke a common language.
2: This second home gave Bogcho and his family a place to escape the new wave of violence and disorder that was already sweeping across Afghanistan.
1: Coming up, we'll discuss how the Taliban's rise drastically changed Haji Bogcho's drug empire.
0: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness.
1: After the Soviet exodus in 1989, a civil war erupted in Afghanistan as different Mujahideen factions battled for power. By the mid-1990s, Afghans were tired of the chaos. They were ready for a return to tradition and religion.
2: The Taliban emerged in the spring of 1994 as a religious movement led by a former Mujahideen fighter turned Islamic scholar, Mullah Mohammed Omar. Over the next two years, his growing militia seized control of dozens of provinces from the Mujahideen warlords.
1: Omar owed some of his success to a major drug trafficker named Haji Bashar Nurze. Nurze was impressed by Omar's religious zeal, so he convinced the Quetta Alliance, a syndicate of Southwest Asian drug lords, to financially back the Taliban.
2: This was good news for Haji Bagcho, who, by some accounts, was also part of the Quetta Alliance. At the very least, witnesses say he attended some of their meetings in the late 1990s and early 2000s.
1: These meetings would have given him the opportunity to build relationships with Taliban commanders. As the Taliban rose to power, so would Haji Bogcho.
2: On September 27, 1996, The Taliban captured the capital and installed Mullah Mohammed Omar as the supreme leader of Afghanistan. Once in control, the Taliban imposed strict Sharia law. They banned most entertainment, required women to wear burqas, and forbade men from shaving their beards. But they didn't prohibit opium. In fact, the Taliban even collected taxes on the drug.
1: Throughout the late 90s, it was smooth sailing for drug traffickers like Bogcho. After almost two decades of war and chaos, they could finally sit back and admire the fruits of their labor.
2: That changed in July of 2000. Four years into the Taliban's reign, Omar abruptly banned poppy production. He ordered his commanders to plow down every poppy field they could find, Farmers who resisted were jailed.
1: Omar hoped this move would impress the United Nations, which refused to recognize the Taliban as a legitimate government. Omar's gambit failed to earn him any recognition from the UN, but it did impress the United States.
2: American narcotics experts were amazed when they visited in the spring of 2001. In just one season, the ban had wiped out the globe's largest crop of poppies, and with it, three-quarters of the world's opium supply. Secretary of State Colin Powell announced a $43 million grant in emergency aid to Afghanistan.
1: Despite this aid, the opium ban was a disaster for hundreds of thousands of Afghan farmers. Many defaulted on loans and had to sell off land and livestock to pay their debts. But Haji Bagcho had survived the rise and fall of the Soviets and the Mujahideens. He was determined to outlive the Taliban, too.
2: Bagcho had been stockpiling opium for years before the poppy ban took effect. Whether this was just good foresight or whether he had been tipped off by his friends in the Taliban that a ban was coming, he didn't suffer at all. In fact, he profited immensely.
1: Once the opium supply was wiped out, prices soared. A single kilo of opium, which had sold for about 40 US dollars before the poppy ban took effect, was now worth about 400 dollars. Those who had hoarded drugs in advance were now reaping the rewards. With the
2: billions of dollars Bogchow earned, he could now expand his operations beyond Central and Southwest Asia. He began making more overseas deals with clients in Japan, China, and Europe. Eventually, he was shipping drugs to 20 countries around the globe.
1: During the Taliban's rule, Bogcho probably felt untouchable. His criminal operations were not just tolerated, but protected by the highest levels of government. But the Taliban's policy of protecting criminals would soon be their undoing.
2: During this same period, the Taliban was harboring terrorists like Osama bin Laden. After the World Trade Center attacks on September 11, 2001, the U.S. began military strikes in Afghanistan, and two months later, the Taliban regime was toppled.
1: The fall of the Taliban wasn't necessarily bad news to Bogcho. His stockpile of opium wouldn't last forever, With the Taliban gone, it meant that the ban on growing poppies was over.
2: The new president, Hamid Karzai, leader of the American-backed Afghan Interim Authority, was inaugurated in December of 2001. As Bogcho had hoped, the new administration decided not to continue the Taliban's opium ban.
1: The U.S. military didn't want to interfere with the drug trade either. As far as they were concerned, Their job was to stop terrorism, not cripple poor farmers. But the local law enforcement did make some token efforts to subdue the drug trade.
2: In April of 2002, the Ghani Kel Bazaar was raided by officials. Armed men burst through the bazaar gates, kicking in stall doors and searching booths. The crowd fled as the officers tore down the block, arresting at least 70 merchants.
1: As the dust settled, they realized they'd made a valuable catch, Haji Bogcho. Bogcho
2: was taken into custody and interrogated by a Nangarhar border commander named Zaheer. What happened in that interrogation room is a mystery, but after two days, Bogcho was released. Soon after that, Border Commander Zaheer became one of Bogcho's loyal heroine customers.
1: The arrest didn't seem to hamper Bogcho's operations. In fact, his business continued to expand.
2: In the winter of 2005, Bogcho invited a pair of well connected smugglers to his home. Over tea and refreshments, the men discussed a deal to import 250 kilos of spin mall, the local term for heroin, into New York City.
1: Bogcho was known for producing some of the best heroin in the area, and the men all agreed when you're sending spin mall to a place like America, it must be top quality.
2: Bogcho knew the deal was going to earn him millions of dollars. He encouraged his servant Kari to scrape together whatever money he could and invest it in the New York deal. Kari couldn't come up with enough to make the investment, so Bogcho loaned him the money. He didn't mind sharing the wealth.
1: Once the heroine was on its way to New York, Bogcho ordered his home to be cleaned. He asked that several lambs be slaughtered and prepared for a meal. This occasion called for a party.
2: Bogcho invited his friends and family to join him for dinner. Before they ate, Bogcho recited a blessing to ensure that the heroine would arrive safely in New York. Soon after, the shipment landed in the United States unimpeded.
1: He wouldn't always be so lucky. By the mid-2000s, the United States was rethinking its laissez-faire attitude towards drug trafficking in Afghanistan. As Afghan traffickers expanded their operations, more drugs than ever were making their way into the U.S.
2: The DEA deployed a special team to Afghanistan to work with the U.S. military and the Afghan police forces. The team began investigating the country's top drug traffickers. One of their first targets was Haji Bagcho.
1: The DEA discovered that Bagcho had maintained close ties to the Taliban, who were still fighting against the new government that had ousted them in 2001. Bagcho made payments to top Taliban commanders, and in exchange, he received weapons and security from the Taliban fighters.
2: Bogcho later claimed that he wasn't trying to help the Taliban, which might have been true. If they returned to power, they might ban poppy production again. More than that, Bogcho said that if he hadn't paid the Taliban, they might have killed him. Taliban insurgents certainly weren't above brutally punishing, torturing, and beheading anyone who crossed them.
1: But Bogcho's relationship with the Taliban dates back to the 90s. There's no reason to believe he stopped communicating with Taliban commanders at any point after the U.S. invasion. Bogcho was willing to work with the Taliban insurgents as long as they protected his heroin labs and shipping trucks.
2: Some witnesses have also said that Bogcho's payments to the Taliban were ideologically motivated. According to one of his former employees, Bogcho believed in the Taliban's fanatic vision of jihad against the infidels. By poisoning Americans with heroin, Bogcho felt he was doing his part to weaken the West.
1: Bogcho denied this claim. But even if Bogcho wasn't an ideological extremist, he must have recognized that the DEA posed a threat to his business. Naturally, he wanted the Americans out of his country. To that end, he had a goal in common with the Taliban.
2: As Bogcho's ties to the Taliban grew tighter, the DEA became more intent on taking him down. By 2006, they found an ally that might help their case, a young man named Farid.
1: Farid hated the Taliban. Their suicide bombings were getting innocent people killed. And Farid knew that the insurgents couldn't operate without the aid of the drug traffickers.
2: In the fall of 2006, the DEA gave Farid $5,000 to buy heroin from Haji Bagcho.
1: Farid's father had once owned an opium shop at the Ghani Kel Bazaar, and Bagcho had been one of their frequent customers. Bagcho didn't think anything of it when he got a call from Farid asking to buy two kilos of heroin. Two
2: kilos was nothing to Bogcho. He normally wouldn't even agree to a transaction that small, but he didn't mind doing a favor for the son of a friend.
1: Farid told Bogcho that he would leave $5,000 with a seraph, or banker. Once he received the heroin, he'd call the seraph and tell him to release the money into Bogcho's account.
2: Everything went according to plan. Two days later, Bogcho had the heroin delivered to his compound and he told Fareed to stop by and pick it up.
1: Fareed rode over to Bogcho's house with a car full of DEA agents. About half a mile away, he told them to stop. He'd walk the rest of the way. In a village like this, everyone knew each other. If anyone saw him with these strange Americans, he'd be dead.
2: When Fareed got to Bogcho's house, a teenage servant met him at the front gate and handed him a telephone. It was Haji Bagcho. He said he was at the bazaar, pricing opium, but he'd be back soon. He asked Farid to wait at the compound until he got home.
1: The servant let Farid in and led him through the concrete courtyard to the guest house. The boy made a gesture, indicating that Farid should go inside. And then the boy left Farid there, alone.
2: Farid waited. Minutes passed. He wondered if this was some kind of ambush. If Bogcho figured out that he was working with the Americans, what would happen to him? Would they drag him from a car until he was dead? Dismember his body and dump it in an unmarked grave?
1: Then the teenager returned carrying two kilos of heroin. Farid took it. He wrapped it in a cloth and then he left as quickly as he could.
2: When Bogcho returned home, he was surprised to find that Farid was gone. Observing hospitality customs is an important part of Afghan culture. He'd expected Farid to wait so he could properly honor him as a guest.
1: Bogcho's servant explained that Farid had left in a hurry, as soon as he had picked up the heroin. Bogcho found that a little strange.
2: Bogcho also found it strange that Farid failed to contact the Saraf and transfer the money when the deal was over. He wasn't angry about the money. $5,000 was more than 10 times the typical yearly income for the average Afghan, but it was pocket change to someone like Bogcho. Still, he called Farid the next day to ask what was going on.
1: Farid seemed nervous. He quickly apologized for not authorizing the money transfer right away. He told Bogcho he'd take care of it immediately.
2: Before Bogcho hung up, he told Fareed to keep 10,000 rupees for himself, the equivalent of about 200 U.S. dollars. It was a bonus and also a message. He wanted to make sure that the next time Fareed's Pakistani friend wanted to buy heroin, Fareed would call Bogcho and nobody else. No other drug dealer would treat him so well.
1: The deal was done and Bogcho moved on. It never even occurred to him that Fareed was working as a police informant.
2: When we come back, we'll talk about how Fareed's deal pushed Bogcho toward a head-on confrontation with DEA agents.
1: Now, back to the story.
2: In the fall of 2006, the United States DEA was building a solid case against 64-year-old kingpin Haji Bogcho. Their informant for Reid had made a few nervous missteps, but he'd gotten the evidence the Americans wanted.
1: The drug deal was just one part of a bigger scheme. U.S. forces and Afghan law enforcement had begun a new means of attack by locating heroin labs, gathering evidence to convict the kingpins, and then bombing them to cripple the heroin supply.
2: Luckily, geography worked in Bogcho's favor. Nangarhar's tall mountains provided cover to the Taliban insurgents that guarded his drug labs. Whenever law enforcement tried to destroy one of Bogcho's labs, it became a dangerous and complicated mission.
1: Even so, Bogcho realized that the Americans weren't going to stop targeting him for a while. He figured he could at least gain insight into what the Americans were doing by bribing corrupt Afghan police officers and pumping them for information. Corrupt officers had always proved useful to Bogcho in the past.
2: A business associate had introduced Bogcho to a member of the Afghan border police, a commander named Shaheen. Bogcho courted Shaheen with free gasoline and gifts. He promised the commander two free cars, which could be loaded with heroin if that was his preference.
1: Of course, it wasn't just generosity. In return for these gifts, Bogcho asked Commander Shaheen to warn him if the Americans were planning a raid on his property. The commander seemed happy to oblige.
2: But it was all a ruse. The business associate who had introduced Shaheen to Bogcho was a police informant. Commander Shaheen was reporting everything he learned about Bogcho to the DEA, and he certainly had no intention of warning him about any planned raids.
1: Thanks to Shaheen and Bogcho's heroin deal with Fareed, by the fall of 2006, the DEA had enough evidence for a search warrant. Afghan police and U.S. agents descended on Bogcho's compound.
2: It was early in the morning. Bogcho had no idea the agents were coming. He was resting on his cot when he heard the helicopters. He wasn't concerned at first. He lived in a war zone. Helicopters were always flying overhead.
1: But soon, the choppers landed. DEA agents and Afghan police poured out.
2: Bogcho's compound was like a fortress. A mud brick wall, 10 foot high, surrounded the premises. But the strike team quickly broke through the front gate and swarmed into the courtyard.
1: Bogcho could hear the men from his room, but they weren't inside the house yet. His servant Kari ran into the room. Bogcho thrust his satellite phone into Kari's hands and told him to hide it. Then he fled outside through a back door.
2: Open fields surrounded Bogcho's house, providing little cover as he ran. He prayed he'd gotten a good enough head start.
1: Meanwhile, dozens of DEA agents swarmed into the residence. Bogcho's two wives and several of his children and grandchildren lived in the compound, and as DEA footsteps pounded through the halls, panicked women and children ran in every direction.
2: The agents captured everyone they could find. They brought Bogcho's servants and family members to the front courtyard and zip-tied their wrists. Then they began their search.
1: At one point, the agents saw an old man running away from the compound. But chasing him into the mountains and possibly running into an ambush of Taliban insurgents was not part of the plan. They were only there to execute a search warrant.
2: Once he had gotten far enough away, Bogcho crouched among the rocks. He waited there for hours while the agents searched his
1: home. The DEA agents found Bogcho's satellite phone in Kari's pocket. But Kari had removed the phone's battery and SIM card. He told the agents the phone didn't work. The agents accepted that explanation and let him keep the phone.
2: The DEA agents completed their search, bagged the evidence, and loaded it onto their helicopters. They released everyone that they had detained and flew away from the scene.
1: After the raid, Bogcho decided to take his family to his second home in Pakistan. He hid out there for a few years, running his drug enterprise from Hayatabad, Perhaps he thought he could wait out the American war in Afghanistan. He probably assumed that the war would have to end eventually, as every past conflict had.
2: But the raid had rattled everyone in Bogcho's compound. His servant Kari was especially nervous. Now that the DEA seemed to be closing in, Kari worried that he might be arrested. Bogcho was the most powerful man he knew but he wasn't as powerful as the US government.
1: Over the years, Bogcho had come to see Kari as a member of the family. But Bogcho was about to discover the limits of family loyalty. Not long after the raid, Kari turned himself in to the US DEA agents. He also agreed to help lure Bogcho out of Pakistan and bring him into custody.
2: Kari called Bogcho regularly while he was in Pakistan, keeping him up to date on his Afghan operations and clients. During one of these calls, he told Bogcho that a potential new client from Japan was interested in making a deal. The Americans thought they could entice Bogcho to travel to Japan, where it would be safer for them to make an
1: arrest. But Bogcho's trust started to fade as the Japanese deal progressed. Kari seemed a little too enthusiastic about it. He called Bogcho so many times to discuss the Japanese buyer that Bogcho lost his temper. He complained, you guys are like kids, you keep calling.
2: Kari tried to salvage the deal, but Bogcho knew something was wrong. In their last phone call, Bogcho told his servant that he knew he was working as an informant. He said, you're a pimp, good for nothing, man. Why did you do such a thing? You were like my son.
1: Kari tried to deny it. He said he wanted to restore his honor and meet with Bogcho face to face to convince him that he was still loyal.
2: Bogcho replied, I'm going to eat you up. Listen, I'm going to eat you alive. I'm telling you so, and the rest is up to you.
1: After that, Kari fled his village. He moved to Kabul, lived in hotels, and tried to stay anonymous in a city with a population of over 3 million people. He knew he would never feel safe until Bogcho was caught.
2: Unfortunately, once Kari's cover was blown, the plan to capture Bogcho in Japan fell apart. But the US agents got lucky in May of 2009. 67-year-old Haji Bogcho was arrested by Pakistani police for carrying false identification documents.
1: Bogcho tried to bribe his way out of trouble, but it didn't work this time. The Pakistani government agreed to expel Bogcho to Afghanistan. Afghan authorities and U.S. agents arranged to pick up Bogcho in Torkham, a crossing point between Pakistan and Afghanistan.
2: The Torkham path is a single road, winding into the mountains, rife with Taliban outposts and roadside bombs. It is one of the most dangerous roads in the world. DEA agents didn't know what they might be walking into.
1: They waited at the border until they spotted Pakistani authorities coming forward, leading a handcuffed man with a sheet over his head. The Afghan police moved toward the gate and grabbed the hooded man. It wasn't until they loaded him into their car that they were able to take off the hood and confirm his identity. It was Haji Bogcho.
2: Bogcho seemed incredulous to find himself in custody. He told the officers, There is no criminal object in my hand. Bogcho thought that as long as they didn't find any heroin on
1: him, he was safe. But in their searches of Bogcho's properties, they had collected ledgers, business documents, and drug paraphernalia. They had multiple witnesses Commander Shaheen, Farid, Kari, and other informants who all agreed to testify against him.
2: The Afghan government extradited Bogcho to Washington, D.C. on June 24, 2009. Bogcho was indicted by a grand jury six months later and eventually sentenced to life in prison. With that sentence, the U.S. justice system had taken down the world's most successful heroin
1: trafficker. Despite the successful prosecution of Haji Bogcho, very few Afghan kingpins have shared Bogcho's fate. Disagreements within the U.S. government over the best way to bring stability to the region have slowed the DEA's efforts to target drug lords in Afghanistan.
2: Meanwhile, the Afghan drug trade continues to fund the Taliban. Recent reports indicate that the Taliban is still gaining strength and capturing more territory.
1: For the foreseeable future, America's longest war wages on. Bringing peace to Afghanistan often seems like an insurmountable task. But with each kingpin that falls, the reign of corruption becomes a little weaker.
2: Thanks again for listening to Kingpins.
1: You can find more episodes of Kingpins, as well as all of Parcast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory.
2: Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review.
1: And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Kingpins is written by Christina Pamies and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett.